All right. Well, you can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Wrapped up our series on the Psalms last week, and we are getting back into Luke here, which is exciting. Um, Luke chapter 9, if you have a pew Bible, that is on page 868. Well, one of the inevitable consequences of traveling to or living in a different place than other than the place where you grew up is that you make a lot of comparisons. You make a lot of comparisons with that new place uh, if you've, especially if you've traveled, even if you haven't lived uh, abroad or lived in a different region, if you've traveled to a, a different region, even of the U.S., uh, you've probably noticed some things about how people do things differently. Uh, actually, when my friend Joey was up here uh, a couple week, weekends ago, we were talking about just like Wisconsin lingo. I don't know if you've seen some of the funny YouTube videos about like the you know, the Wisconsin accents and the Ope videos and all that stuff. And we're showing him these videos and just laughing. And you don't even realize it sometimes, you know, until like someone from the outside comes in and points it out and you're like, oh yeah, we're kind of weird, right? And uh, we do all these things. One of the things living overseas for uh, almost a decade, one of the things I realized is that Americans have a high value on efficiency. Uh, we're very good at efficiency in America. We're innovative. We solve problems. We have a get-her-done mentality, right? Especially in the Midwest. But there's also a flip side to every strength. Every strength has its weakness that comes with it. And the downsides of, of some of these things that we that I just mentioned, you know, being innovative and problem solving, getting things done. I think the downside of those things come with pride, self-sufficiency, a superiority complex, like we're better than you because look at all the things we can do. And I'm, this is very much a confession right now. And I think for Christians, this can easily translate into our spiritual lives in a dangerous way. We need Jesus to confront us in our pride and our self-sufficiency, just as he did with his disciples and with those who sought to follow him. Like I said, we're getting back into Luke's gospel here after taking a break for the summer, just to kind of catch us up with where we were at in late May and early June. We looked at the first over several weeks, we looked at the first 50 verses of, John, or of uh, Luke chapter 9. Uh, I actually looked through all of Luke, and this is the most broken up chapter of all the chapters in Luke into different sections. There's 13 different sections here in chapter 9, so we, we kind of took those in some, in some smaller chunks and, and preached through that. But some of the things, even if you're just, as you're just looking at the chapter Jesus sent out the 12 apostles at the beginning of the chapter. He gave them power and authority over demons and diseases. So it kind of starts off with, you know, Jesus had been doing all this healing work, all these, this casting out of demons kind of from chapter 4 to chapter 8, showing his power and authority. And then in chapter 9, he gives that power and authority to the disciples to go out and do those things. So it's, chapter 9, is start, we're starting to have this turning point in Luke. 
They're sent out to proclaim the kingdom of God, to take nothing with them on their journey, to enter houses from town to town and stay where the people received them. And for those who didn't receive them, now keep this in mind as we are going to look at our text for this morning. For those that didn't receive them, this is earlier in chapter 9, they were to shake the dust off their feet and move on. Some other things we also saw in chapter 9, the feeding of the 5,000, Peter confessing Jesus as the Christ, Jesus foretelling his death on two separate occasions, and then calling those who would follow him to take up their crosses daily. We saw the transfiguration where Peter, James, and John are up on the mountain, and Jesus is is transfigured, and Moses and Elijah appear. Saw the healing of a demon-possessed boy. And then just before this passage, there is this argument among the disciples, which one of them is the greatest, in verses 46 to 48. And then after that, they're trying to stop people from casting out demons in Jesus' name because that person wasn't following them. That's in 49 and 50. So those last two sequences there, just before this passage, are particularly important because they reveal a serious flaw in the disciples' understanding of what Jesus is trying to accomplish, and that leads us into our passage for this morning. This is the turning point in Luke's gospel, Luke 9, 51, and we'll see that in a minute. Let's go to our text. Please pay attention to the reading of God's word, Luke 9, 51 to 62. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, we need this reminder from your word. We need to hear. We need to apply these things to our lives. We need to see clearly uh, with new eyes. Father, we ask that this morning, by the power of your Spirit, that you would give us eyes to see, that you would open our ears to hear from you, to live for you, God, and to be changed by your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want us to be able to put ourselves in the disciples' shoes here, to see that they are us and we are them. 
Jesus' rebuke here and the call to follow him in these two sections are not intended to crush us and to beat us down. Rather, they are intended to point out our sin and to develop a greater dependence upon Jesus. The two things that we're going to look at this morning, if you are looking at the worship guide, you'll see the title of the message. Let God and let go. And yes, it is intentionally a reversal of that weird and vague saying that I'm not sure anyone really knows what it means, let go and let God. Well, Before we get to let God, let's look at verse 51. I mentioned that this is the turning point in Luke's gospel, and it's really the focal point which kind of guides us into these two sections. It says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This journey to Jerusalem is now the focal point of Luke's gospel. Jesus' face is set and the cross is squarely in view. This, where it says here to be taken up is probably speaking of his ascension. So really from here until the middle of chapter 19, where Jesus enters into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, uh, which is Palm Sunday, which we're actually going to get to that passage exactly on Palm Sunday, which is, which is great. Um, 9.51 through kind of middle of, of chapter 19 is this whole section of Jesus journeying to Jerusalem. His ministry up to this point has been in Galilee, and now he's, he's journeying to Jerusalem, and his, it says that his face is set. As Joel Green points out in his commentary, the focus of this travel narrative in these chapters is that Jesus is forming a people who will hear and obey the word of God. If you flip back just one chapter, there's the discussion about Jesus' mother and his brothers. He's told that his mother and his brothers are outside desiring to see him. He says in chapter 8, verse 21, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. So Joel Green is saying that Jesus here is forming a people who will hear the word of God and obey it. That's the focus here as we get into all these parables and all these different teachings in these, in these chapters. But it's interesting here how this all starts off with James and John, these two disciples, two of this inner circle, right? They were with Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration. And then we see this picture of these other prospective disciples who Jesus encounters in the second half. So let's look first at this idea of let God in verses 51 to 56. Jesus had sent the messengers ahead of him into this Samaritan village to make preparations for him, but we're told in verse 53 that the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Now, we don't see it exactly in the English, probably because it would be a little just weird and, and clunky in the translation, but this word face is actually used three times. We see it twice. Uh, we see it in verse 51, that where we don't see it is in verse 52, where it says he sent his messengers ahead of him. The Greek literally says he sent them ahead of his face. Okay, so in three verses back to back to back, we see this idea of Jesus' face. Jesus is focused, he is fixing and setting his face, he is determined to carry out the mission that he has been sent to carry out. Now that is clear that we, we see this in verse 53, 
The reason that the people didn't receive him, that word because there is very important. Because his face was set toward Jerusalem. This is not just some like, well, maybe they just didn't like him. No, the Samaritan people in not receiving Jesus are carrying out the will of God and pushing him on toward Jerusalem. There's nothing like, we don't really know what's going on here. It's very clearly stated that this, the purpose for this rejection is God's will, God carrying out his plan for his son to go to the cross. <clears throat> well, so what's the big deal here? Well, James and John, who Jesus had nicknamed the sons of thunder, which is very fitting, they want to bring the noise and they want to bring the heat as they ask Jesus here, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now, if we think about this question, this is a ridiculous question on their part for at least three reasons. First, are they the ones with authority to call down fire from heaven and consume people? Now, they were given authority over demons. They were given authority to cure diseases and to preach the gospel in 9-1. But this request is totally out of bounds. Jesus said nothing about going out and calling down fire to kill people. Second reason this is a ridiculous question. Even if they had asked Jesus, Jesus, will you call down fire and consume these people? Because he was the only one with authority to do that, right? If they would have asked him, he would not have done that. He was going to the cross to bear the wrath of God that those Samaritans deserved and that James and John themselves deserved. And the third thing, which is mentioned earlier, Jesus had already told them how to respond in this situation. Shake the dust off of your feet and go on to the next town. I mean, it was probably only days before this that he had told them that, maybe a couple weeks, but he had very clearly given them instructions on how to respond in this situation. And already they're trying to take things into their own hands, right? We want to kill these people because they didn't welcome us into their village. And I think the ridiculousness of their question is seen very clearly in Jesus' response. Verse 55, he turned and rebuked them. Luke doesn't even tell us what Jesus says in rebuke. But let me paraphrase how I think it may have gone. Let God, right? Let God be God. Let God worry about these people. Stay in your lane, boys, right? Stop trying to think that you know the will of God. That you, I mean, how preposterous to think that like Jesus can't handle this, so we need to take it into our own hands. Stop trying to think that you know the will of God better than God does. Have you ever needed to hear this rebuke? Maybe when you felt like you wanted to call down fire on another person. We've all been there, right? Maybe when you assumed that you knew the will of God in a situation, but later realized you were just flat out wrong. Maybe when you thought that justice would be better served by human vengeance than by a Savior hanging on a cross. 
Brothers and sisters, let us not try to put ourselves in the place of God. Rather, let us move out of the way and let God be God, trusting that, his, that he is wisely and perfectly carrying out his divine purposes, even when we can't always see it. And if we don't need to hear that, especially right now with everything going on in the world, I don't know when we do. Second, let go. Verses 57 to 62. I'm not going to get into all the little details of this, but basically there are three people who encounter Jesus here on the road. The first one claims that he will follow Jesus wherever he goes. Jesus' response, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus is saying, basically, I, I can't even find housing in this Samaritan village. Are you sure you want to follow me? Are you sure you want to walk on this journey with me? Are you sure you're ready for this type of rejection? The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The second person is actually approached by Jesus. Jesus comes to this person and says, follow me. But we have then what we see in this case and in the next case. We have an excuse and we have this uh, attempt at delaying. The response is, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, there's nothing wrong with this. There's nothing wrong with wanting to honor, for this person to honor their father and to go and, and bury them. But Jesus' kingdom agenda requires leaving everything behind and following him. Then he tells them, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. The third person said that he would follow Jesus, but he needs to go and say his farewells at home first. There's actually an interesting parallel here in this passage to chapter 14, kind of a parallel passage. The cost, it's titled The Cost of Discipleship in the, the ESV heading there in chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse 33, Jesus says, Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That's interesting because that word renounce there is the same word that's used here to say farewell to the family. So there's this idea of saying farewell also being that same concept of renouncing, of, of cutting off ties and of going a separate way. The call by Jesus to all three of these individuals is to let go. Let go of everything that might hinder you from following him. And that's seen very clearly in the last verse. Verse 62, Jesus said, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. We see this language again here, the kingdom of God. It was used earlier to go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, putting your hand to the plow and looking back means you're not fit for the kingdom of God. <clears throat> Obviously, thinking about trying to 
trying to direct a plow, right, behind an animal while you're looking back. I was just thinking about this. I've uh, been teaching Lily how to drive lately, and uh, she's got a permit. We've been spending many hours on the road, but even just think about driving, right? If you look backwards, even for a few seconds, you're not able to stay driving straight as, as hard as you try, right? There's this idea of, of turning and looking behind you. Whatever you're doing, you can't keep focused on what is ahead of you if, if your body is, is twisted and your eyes are not looking forward. That's the picture here. These farmers cannot plow in straight rows if at the same time that they're trying to move forward, they're also focused on looking behind them and concerned about what is behind them. This language here on the kingdom of God, Jesus is seeking to reorient those who would follow after him to a new standard and a totally different way of approaching life. Again, Joel Green in his commentary has a great summary of what Jesus is calling for here. He writes, those who would be his disciples then and now must reckon with how identifying with Jesus might place them outside the boundaries of what is acceptable to a world not oriented toward the aim of God. Let me read that again. Those who would be his disciples then and now must reckon with how identifying with Jesus might place them outside the boundaries of what is acceptable to a world not oriented toward the aim of God. How much does the church of Jesus Christ need this reminder and encouragement right now? As we prepare to come to the table, to come to the Lord's Supper, I think this is a very fitting reminder. We are called to identify with Jesus in a world that is not oriented toward the aim of God. That is what we proclaim as we come to the table, as we come and take these elements. We are saying we identify with Jesus in this world that is going in a different direction in a world that is not oriented towards God's ways and towards his aim. This is not the way to win friends and influence people. This is not popularity right here, coming and identifying with a crucified Savior. If we want a watered-down gospel that is easy to swallow, then we should go somewhere else. If we want a crucified and risen and reigning Savior who demands all of our lives, then we're in the right place. And I'm not just talking about living stone, right? I'm not just saying we got it right and nobody else does. I'm talking about gospel preaching churches that are going to continue to preach the truth of what it means to identify with Jesus when the world is increasingly hostile towards us. Again, this is, guys, this is not just some like ritual thing that we do, right? This is making a statement to one another and to the world around us that we identify with this Jesus. The one whose body was broken and whose blood was poured out for us. We come and we say, yes, we want to partake. We want to partake in his suffering. We want to walk with him. 
even though the journey is going to be hard, even though we may not have any place to lay our head, right? We want to put our hands to the plow and walk with him and follow him all the way. This is one of the clearest ways that we can do that. And it starts right here.